0: Today is Shabbat Hagadol, uh, and uh, the tradition is is to sort of get in the groove, right? Remember uh, that Passover is uh, is coming, and it's kind of interesting when I was uh, when I was growing up. Uh, what we what I remember uh, most about the weekend before Passover uh, in my hometown. Is that okay? So Shabbat was Shabbat HaGadol. Well, the next day, Sunday, that was the day that you went shopping for all the kosher for Passover stuff. And, uh, and uh, where I grew up in that period of time, you could not get it at the grocery store. The supermarket, uh, uh, you know, was uh, too filled with peeps or something. You know what I'm saying? Okay. And uh, we had to go to the butch- the kosher butcher. This was his moment, okay. This was his time of year, right? Because it was the kosher butcher who had everything. That's where you got the matzah. That's where you got those uh, those candies that are different colors with a little smile in it. Right? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, and uh, and the rest of it. So I uh, uh, that was like preparation, right? And then uh, I, in my home. Uh, I mean, it, it was, uh, uh, I, I, I like to say, you know, when I was a kid, I always thought we were moving at Passover uh, because of changing everything, everything in the kitchen, pots and pans, dishes, silverware, and the Passover stuff came out. I learned later that it was just, it was just the uh, the dishes that uh, were so uh, old uh, that my mother didn't want to use them every day anymore. So they became the Passover, the kosher for Passover Right, uh, no, no special prayer over them. It's just that you couldn't use them; uh, 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 they, they were, so to speak, they, they became unclean by uh, having anything to do with leaven during the year. So you had to change the, the dishes, you know, and all that. So uh, certainly a lot of uh, preparation, but the internal preparation certainly is um, also important. And the fact of the matter is is that while uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are called the high holy days. You know the fact is is just about everybody, regardless of their personal beliefs uh, or where they live, uh, celebrates in some way or another Passover. Uh, maybe not in an uh, orthodox or very traditional way, but in uh, but you know in one way uh, or another. Uh, and uh, and Passover. Uh, certainly is, uh, you know, a a very important holiday for us as Messiah followers, as believers in Yeshua, because Passover uh, certainly points to the greater redemption, right? To the ultimate redemption uh, in the coming of the Messiah. And that is not just according to us, Uh, you you, you know, that is the understanding in Judaism. In fact, uh, I was reading, uh, you know, I like to, at this time, read over different things and kind of remember uh, certain things about Passover and gain some new insights and things like that. So I was reading uh, Jonathan Sachs's Haggadah, uh, which uh, which is a kind of a funny book because it opens on both sides, right? So the first half of it is essays, so that opens, uh, you know, the normal way English books open, and then the other half of it is a Haggadah, and so you have to open it this way. So uh, there you go, total confusion, Uh, you know. And I guess if it was written in certain other languages, we could open it this way, right? But that would be uh, that would be a real trick. All right. So uh, he he is writing here about the relationship of Passover and the birth of Israel and Zionism. And so in that he writes, uh, you know, he's writing about the early Zionist leaders and how they recognized. Uh, that, uh, you know, Israel is a people of redemption and that we are in exile and we are being oppressed and therefore, just like at Passover in Egypt, we need a, we need a redemption and that had to do with the promised land and that had to do with Zionism and, and the uh, return to Eretz Yisrael. Uh, and so he talks about this, ab- about how uh, this idea of uh, history, how, the his- how past history, plays a very important role in how we think and move forward. right? So he says this. I, what is it to see the presence of God in history? The question is exceptionally difficult to answer. Ancient societies were interested in the past. They, like we, wanted to know how we came to be here, why society was the way it was, and how the universe was formed. Yet none before ancient Israel, saw the unfolding of events as intrinsically meaningful, a narrative of redemption. That's a great little phrase, though, a narrative of redemption. Indeed, virtually all later societies who came to share this vision did so under the influence of the Hebrew Bible. As the historian J.H. Plum puts it, the concept that within the history of mankind itself, a process was at work which would... Uh, mold his future and lead man to situations totally different from his past seems to have found its first expression among the Jews. In and through their religious vision, the past became more than a collection of tales, a projection of human experience, or a system of moral examples. It became an intimate part of destiny and an interpretation of the future. Nothing more profoundly illustrates this than the way the story of the Exodus shaped the Jewish imagination, not only of successive generations, of those who lived uh, their lives by faith, but even profoundly secular figures like the founders of Israel, Hess, Pinsker, and Herzl. In other words, they weren't even religious, but they saw in this communal history the destiny of the Jewish Okay, uh, and then, you know, I'll just read a couple more sentences. He says, the the sequence of exile and homecoming, exodus and redemption, uh, seems from the very beginning to have been part of the basic structure of Jewish consciousness. Adam and Eve are exiled from Eden. Cain is sentenced to a life of exile. The builders of Babel are uh, scattered throughout the earth. Sin, a disturbance of the order of the universe, leads to exile and displacement. Already foreshadowed in the opening chapters is the possibility of an end of days in which mankind, repenting of its sin, uh, experiences a collective homecoming. In Isaiah's words, the wolf will live with the sheep, the lion will lie down with the kid, uh, and so on and so forth. So his point here is, is that in Passover, we see the destiny of Israel. We see the, also the destiny of mankind. Being in exile, being redeemed. And you see this, in a way, over and over again. Exile and redemption. Exile and redemption. In lots of different ways. Uh, Even, uh, you could say, Noah. In the story of Noah, you have exile uh, and redemption. And then the calling uh, out of Israel. And within, you you see Abraham, exile, return. Isaac, uh, Jacob, exile, return. Uh, And then all throughout uh, a Jewish history, you see this uh, this uh, pattern, uh, and uh, uh, certainly uh, the belief uh, among Jewish people uh, in the rabbinic period after the Second Temple was that there's a future coming, that there is no te- that the temple has been destroyed, and in the Passover we need to remember the temple and we need to remember the future, and that is why. Uh, at Passover, what is the last thing we say at the Seder? The very last thing we say at the Seder? Next year in Jerusalem. Ne- it doesn't mean next year. Oh, I hope I can get on a tour and go to see the Holy Land. Uh, okay, which is not a bad idea. But, uh, but it's next year May. May the consummation be here. You know that uh, uh, at the Seder, when we uh, uh, lift up the, the three matzahs after we've broken the middle one, you know, uh, we, we call it the bread of affliction. What do we say at the end of that little paragraph? We say, now we are slaves. Next year, may we be free men, right? Wait a minute, I thought we we're already redeemed and we're celebrating the redemption. Well, what we are remembering there is, is that until that end, until that, that final Passover, until the end, the consummation, the ultimate redemption of the ultimate exile, that we're still in exile, and we're still uh, enslaved. Uh, and it's interesting because even in the Haggadah, we read when we're retelling the story, one part of the retelling begins, we were slaves, right? And then you read a few pages later and it says, we were idolaters. And it's very interesting. We were slaves, we were idolaters, and God redeemed us. In fact, the rabbis say that a catchphrase about Passover, they say, we moved from shame to praise. We move from shame to praise. And this, of course, is the story of Yeshua, right? Even in his, in his own life, right? Of uh, being the bread of affliction to being the bread of life. Uh, his death and his resurrection. Uh, and uh, certainly, uh, we would say among ourselves, and we share our own testimony. We were idolaters, we were slaves, and we have been redeemed. And so you see how, how much Passover looks forward to the redemption that we have uh, in Messiah uh, Yeshua. And it's no coincidence that, that Passover is prevalent in the Brit HaRashah. Uh, even in the life of Yeshua, after he's born, he's brought to Jerusalem at Passover. It's, it's significant, right? Uh, and even what is said, uh, who he is, right? Uh, He is the light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. When is that said? At Passover, right? We see that Yeshua celebrated Passover, not just once at the end, but we read uh, more than once of him. We read of the the prevalence of Passover in the life of Yeshua. Uh, And then, of course, we read uh, Paul writing about uh, the Passover sacrifice, But it is woven in the text all the way through the slavery and freedom passages. All are echoes of the Passover story. Yeshua's whole story and our part in it is part of the Passover story of redemption. Uh, And and so we could say that for us, we could say Passover is a... uh, is one of the high holy days uh, for us uh, indeed. And so we're familiar, I think, a little bit with the uh, Seder uh, and how we celebrate Passover. And I wanted to talk about a couple of different things. You're saying, oh, look at he's got a black little case. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, since 1979, I, I have uh, celebrated Passover at least 10,000 times, okay? Uh, I just want to say, uh, I once told my mother, I've celebrated Passover more than you like 10 times, you know? I, and, and so I, I have this little case. I can tell you uh, some other time and interest, some interesting stories about this little case. But anyway, inside we have our Seder plate, you know, and we have Elijah's cup and... Uh, and all kinds of, of things. I, but of course, I, oh, I cannot leave my home without my shank bow. Uh, okay? And uh, very important. And we, so we want to talk a little bit about the Seder today and, and one thing in particular uh, about it. Okay? You know that uh, just about all of us, how many of you ha- are totally unfamiliar Passover and celebration? Anybody totally unfamiliar? Okay, a couple people. Very good. Uh, and, and so, you know, we, we use a book, it's called the Haggadah, right? And we'll be doing this at our Seder. Everybody will have one of these in front of them and we, we read through it, right? And we have a different responsive readings and so on and, and, and so forth. Uh, and, uh, 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 and in addition, uh, we have our Seder plate. What's interesting is the development of all of these things. You know, I'm going to tell you, so you're going to have to buckle your seatbelt for this. But in Yeshua's day, they did not have a Seder plate. Okay, They didn't have a Seder plate. Okay, uh, They ate the lamb, they ate the bitter herbs, and they ate the matzah. But at, it was after the destruction of the second temple that many of the traditions of, uh, the, of the Jewish people developed. And uh, one of them is having this plate. It's called a Seder plate, right? Uh, and you see that there are little places here for foods that we eat at the Seder Including the uh, bitter herbs, right, uh, and uh, some some really old, like almost ancient seder plates were so big you could put the matzah in the middle, like the the three tiered matzah right on the right on the seder plate. Uh, and uh, there are foods that remind us, of course, of uh, uh, of a lot of things, including the the slavery, the bitter herbs, right, and then we eat uh, something else that's very sweet that reminds us of the. Of, of, of redemption and uh, and and so on you know what's interesting uh, about it is is that in different parts of the world different traditions developed right uh, and on uh, every seder plate uh, you have among all the things you have a bone you have the shank bone uh, of a lamb and then you also have uh, an egg okay uh, a roast it's supposed to be a roasted egg usually we end up hard boiling it Supposed to be a roasted egg. Okay? Uh, and these developed, these traditions developed over time, mostly after the destruction of the second temple. You don't read anywhere in the haggadah uh, about the egg. You don't read, you can read uh, any haggadah in the world, and you're not going to read anything about like hold up the egg, eat the egg. It's there. right? The same thing about the bone. Now, traditionally, there's a point where we remember the sacrifice, so we hold up the bone. But it doesn't say to do that. It doesn't. We do that anyway. But these traditions uh, develop, and we might say, "Well, what is the meaning?" Well, obviously, the meaning of the shank bone is to remember the sacrifice. But it's it's to remember the lamb, the lamb sacrifice. But it's on the seder plate to remind us that there's not a temple anymore to to do the sacrifice. So it's always looking forward to you know. It's looking at the past and looking forward to another, another day of uh, a day of redemption. And then you have the egg, the betzah. The egg is a very interesting, you know, um, uh, eggs uh, uh, were a sign of actually mourning, actually. Uh, and mourning, the, uh, the, uh, according to what I've read, uh, mourning the loss of the temple. Uh, but also, uh, it represented a sacrifice. Uh, you had the Passover sacrifice, which would be the, the bone. And then you had the egg, which would be what was a second sacrifice that was done on the first day of, on the 15th, the morning of the 15th. And that was called the Chag offering, the holiday offering. Or it had an Chagiga offering. But the, Chag, the offering of a holiday, uh, which is very interesting for us. Uh, when you look at the time frame of Yeshua's death, uh, and that egg uh, uh, reminds us also of uh, the, the sacrifice, of the, the Passover sacrifice, but also uh, of life, right, uh, of, of the life that comes from the sacrifice. So uh, what I want to just read is something very quick here to uh, demonstrate that over time, the meanings, the, the evolution of the Seder and the meanings of the different parts of it change over time. And even depending on now, if you were from uh, if you were from Poland, you might have a little different understanding if, than if you came from Lithuania, right, or from uh, Western Russia, or uh, from uh, Germany, right. You you celebrated Passover, but and you you did basically the same thing, but sometimes there would be a little nuance of meaning culturally, culturally. So I just wanted to read read uh, this little paragraph about the the shank bone of the egg. Despite Rav Yosef's interpretation of the two cooked dishes, many others arose. A common explanation held that the shank bone represents God's outstretched arm. In Aramaic, betsa means egg. uh, But the word also appears in an old Aramaic expression, God to be willing to take us out with an outstretched arm. Others saw the egg traditionally associated with mourning as a doleful reminder of the lost temple. A related, custom ser- uh, a related custom serving boiled eggs at the Seder also serves an expression of the morning for the temple. Although eggs are a traditional food of morning, they also symbolize spring and eternal life. So my point is simply this, that when it comes to the traditions of the holiday, within the Jewish world, different important meanings have come to be associated with the holiday. Do you know that in some Jewish circles today, an orange is on the Seder plate? Don't ask me why. Okay? Uh, And and so depending on where we're at in in history, uh, you have these things. And I say that to emphasize that as Messianic Jews, there's nothing wrong with us looking at the Passover Seder and looking at all the elements of the Seder and pointing to Yeshua, the Messiah. That is not like desecrating the tradition. It's actually what Jews do, (laughs) is reappropriate symbols depending on where we're at in history. So it's kind of interesting uh, to do that. Uh, Of course, we don't like to do that because we think that however we grew up is the one way only of doing anything. I, but, uh, but that is not uh, the, the case. So uh, what I wanted to talk about uh, today, for the next few minutes, is actually one item on the table. That's one. The shank bone, the bone of the world, Okay. Actually, uh, you know what's really uh, kind of interesting? Just in case, here we got another one. I think I have like four. Oh, that's a candle. Uh, you know, I can celebrate Passover in my car. Uh, You know, it's really uh, unbelievable, unbelievable. You know, many years ago, when I, uh, you know, back in 1979, 1980, when I started doing all this, it never dawned on, here's my mind, it never dawned on me to ask anyone to prepare it. So I had to like bring, I'm bringing the parsley. and I'll never forget, I'm all dressed up and I'm cutting up the apple, you know, and, and the honey, and I right there sitting in my, what a mess, you know? And then it dawned on me, oh, ask people to prepare something. Oh, that's a good idea. And, uh, and there we go. But anyway, so this issue of the, of the shank bone. You know, the Hebrew name for it is really very interesting. It's called the zroah. Zroah. If you have a, if you have a Haggadah or you have a Seder plate, the place for the shank bone is going to say zroah, right? Arm. which means arm. Uh, And in the Bible, uh, this is really significant, and just as in the uh, book I uh, was uh, reading, it, it not only reminds us of the Passover sacrifice, and it not only reminds us of the Passover sacrifice in light of the fact that there's no temple, but it reminds us also of the power of God. It reminds us of the arm of the Lord. Uh, the outstretched arm of the Lord. And that phrase, the arm of the Lord, uh, is interesting. Kind of like the day of the Lord, in a way. Is it joy or is it distress, right? Well, the arm of the Lord is, speaks of both deliverance and of judgment. Uh, and you see it right there at, uh, at the Passover. And there are a number of passages that speak about this, clearly. Uh, one of them uh, that we like to read at Passover is uh, in Exodus, uh, chapter, uh, Exodus chapter 6. In Exodus 6, uh, we read, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm uh, and with great judgments with the Zroah. And then uh, later on, in the book of Deuteronomy in particular, you read it in a number of places. I'm only going to read just one or two here. In Deuteronomy 4, in verse uh, 34, we read here, um, 33 and 34, Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire, as you have heard and survived? Or has a God tried to go and take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials and signs and wonders and by war and by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great terrors as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? In chapter 5, in verse 15, a few verses later, he says, And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe uh, the Sabbath day to remember Shabbat. One of the reasons of remembering Shabbat is the outstretched arm uh, of God. And then there's lots of lots of other places uh, in uh, in Deuteronomy, uh, but in the Psalms also, in uh, Psalm 136. Uh, we read this in Psalm 136 in verse uh, 12, right? With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. I, well, here, actually, verse 10. I always do this, right? We have to go back a couple of them. Verse 10, Psalm 136, verse 10. To him who smote the Egyptians in their firstborn, for his loving kindness is everlasting. He brought Israel out from their midst, for his loving kindness is everlasting. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder, his loving kindness is everlasting. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And then it goes, you know, and he overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. Uh, All of that is attributed to the outstretched uh, arm, uh, the outstretched arm uh, of, uh, of God. And there's another place I want to look, and that is Psalm 106. It doesn't actually speak about the outstretched arm, but it speaks about the power, which is synonymous with the outstretched arm of God. And I want us just to notice something. In Psalm 106, uh, in uh, verse uh, 7, it says, Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindness. They rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Nonetheless, he saved them for the sake of his name, uh, and he, uh, that he might make his power known. His power is, is his arm. Okay? That he might make his power known. He thus, thus he rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. Uh, and he led them through the deeps as through the wilderness. So he saved them from the hand of the one who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Uh, And so the power of God is related not only to the lamb, uh, you know, the the lamb dying so the firstborn could live, but also to the, the power of the parting of the waters. Uh, of the sea. In fact, we could call uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Exodus experience uh, the finished work of Passover. You know, the finished work of Passover is the death of the lamb, putting the blood on the door, eating the meal, hurry up and leaving, going to the, going to the Red Sea, and then the waters parting and the people passing through. Uh, The whole thing is the Passover experience. The whole thing. Uh, Because in Psalm 106, in the very next verse, it says, Then they believed his words and they sang his praise. Uh, In other words, they experienced the redemption. They didn't experience the redemption uh, only when they put the blood on the door and the firstborn lived, because when they got to the Red Sea the Egyptians were coming and it would have been all a waste of time if the waters had not parted, it would have been for nothing. see And of course, this relates very much to Messiah our Passover, sacrificed for us because it well, yes, uh, you know he died for our sins, took our, our the sin and guilt of our sins upon himself, but then he rose from the dead of Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If he had not risen from the dead, it would have all been a waste, right? The finished work of Messiah, right? Uh, And and so uh, we see the arm of the Lord, the power of God, is what brings all of this to pass. Well, then, you know, later on uh, in history, we read more about this outstretched arm. In the earlier places, like in the Torah, The outstretched arm of God is his deliverance. His deliverance out of Egypt. Okay. But if you look in a passage like Jeremiah chapter 32, we read something else about this outstretched arm of God. In Jeremiah chapter 32, and about the Zroah, in verse uh, 17, okay, he says, Ah, Lord God, Behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy, by thy great power and by thine outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you, who showest loving kindness to thousands, but repays the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. O oh, great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. I, I And then he... You can continue reading that, and he's going to talk about Egypt uh, and, uh, and, and so on, about how uh, by the power of God, God uh, brought uh, Israel out of Egypt uh, and that this power of God also was there in, in creation. And, and uh, basically what he's doing here in uh, chapter 32 is he's saying that same power is available today to redeem us now. And then in, in Ezekiel... Very specifically, in uh, Ezekiel chapter uh, 20, in verse 33, As I live, declares the Lord, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with, uh, and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. And I shall bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm uh, and with wrath poured out. And I shall bring you in into the wilderness and judge you, and then you will enter the land. And then he go, he does relate it farther down uh, to uh, to the events of Egypt. Uh, and so the point there is is that once you get into the prophets, this uh, the outstretched arm of God is not only reminding us of the of the uh, past in Egypt, but just like Egypt, God continues to be the God of redemption. Uh, and his power is still there, and he will indeed redeem us. And then, of course, we come uh, uh, to uh, the, book of, uh, the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah. Okay, uh, And uh, we read here in chapter 40, uh, we read, behold, in verses 10 and 11, behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Zroah, Zroah, ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his Zroah, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. And then uh, we read in chapter uh, 51 uh, of Isaiah, this cry. This cry to God. This cry for redemption. In Isaiah chapter 51, we read here in verse 9, Awake, awake! Put on strength, O arm of the Lord! O Zroah Adonai! Awake, as in the days of old, the generations of long ago! Was it not you that cut Rahab, Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea the waters of the great deep, who make the depth of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over. Notice the power of God, the Zroa Adonai, is related to the parting of the water, to the parting of the water. That is, in once you get to the prophets, the parting of the water is the focus of the, the a great miracle. Very interesting. So the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion and everlasting joy will be on their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing and flee away. Oh, come, Zroa Adonai, arm of the Lord, just like at Egypt. And then when you come to chapter the end of chapter 52, we read about this servant who's going to prosper. Uh, but then we read something very interesting, right? So in Isaiah 52, verse 13, Behold, my servant will prosper He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. When you read that, you have to pause there and say, what? I don't understand. How is he going to be high and lifted up and greatly exalted? Yet he seems he's going to be damaged in some way. Uh, Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. It's sort of very quizzical, verses 13 to 15. But now, in beginning in the next chapter, uh, Isaiah is going to elaborate on this in the form of the testimony of the remnant of Israel who comes to eventually embrace the suffering servant. And this is what he says. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the Zroah Adonai been revealed? The arm of the Lord. And here the arm of the Lord is not just the power of God, but it is personified in the person of Yeshua. He is the Zroah. So he is the lamb. He is the substitute uh, for all of us. Uh, And then we read about him. We read for he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. It's amazing. He's not going to be somebody that we would naturally be. We would naturally gravitate to. You ever notice that famous people, uh, oftentimes even in the world of Messiah followers who write books or sing songs are attractive-looking people, right? Uh, but here, the Messiah... And also, the images of Yeshua in books, films, and elsewhere, is he was not attractive, you know? Uh, even in the more recent things where they try to make him look really Middle Eastern, he looks like a really attractive Middle Eastern guy. Okay? I have yet to see an ugly Jesus. Okay? <laughs> And that is, that's what, it, it's what it's saying, okay? We should we wouldn't, like, why would I ever want to have anything to do with this guy, right? That's what it's saying here. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You know, in other words, he had a sorrowful life, a, a life of, uh, of difficulty uh, and uh, suffering, okay? and like one from whom men hide their face. like I can't even look at him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. In other words, get that guy away. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. We thought he was like cursed from God, but we got it all wrong. He was pierced through for our transgressions; he was crushed for our iniquities. By the chastening for our well-being fell up, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray; each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The Zroah, the power of God, the Lamb of God. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that's led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due. In other words, we completely had it all wrong. This is the testimony of Jewish Messiah. Of this is the testimony of Jewish people, and I, perhaps others, uh, who grow up thinking, what do I ever want to have to do with him, you know? I, I, I remember, and I've shared this probably before, that, you know, uh, I used to have a book. It was bright red with white letters, and it said, you take Jesus, I'll take God. And it was a, a book to dissuade Jewish people from believing in Yeshua. Total misunderstanding of who the Messiah is, of who we are. A total misunderstanding of everything. And that's what's being described about the arm of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 53, right? And then it goes on to say, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him By putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering—well, that's a loaded thing, right there. But anyway, guilt offering. He will. But notice it says at the end of the verse, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. Embedded in this is life after crucifixion, is life after death or resurrection. His days will be prolonged if he would become an offering for sin, okay? And then what do we read in verse 11? Uh, As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. After the anguish, he will see it and be satisfied. Again, life after the the death. We could say he he moved uh, in the eyes of the people from shame to praise. And that becomes our own story as well, right? Uh, He will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. He will take their sins uh, on him. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. You know when it says because he poured himself out to death, May I suggest that is alluded to we don't have time to discuss it here but that is alluded to in uh, the second chapter of Philippians uh, the emptying of Messiah the pouring of himself out to death not the emptying of his deity or the emptying of his um, uh, man, you know of his uh, um, godly uh, characteristics, but that he He suffered. That's the point of that passage. Okay, Uh, Very, very, very important. And of course, then when you come to the Brit when we talk about the arm of the Lord in the Gospel of John, uh, in the 12th chapter, we read this. In 1235, Yeshua said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, that darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, in order that you may become sons of light. These things Yeshua spoke, and he departed and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report?" And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Yohanan, or John, is telling us Yeshua is the one in Isaiah. And that's why they did not understand. Some people will say, well, if Yeshua is the Messiah, then we should all believe, you know, then Jewish people would automatically know. No, according to Isaiah, that when the Messiah comes, we are going to completely misunderstand him. And eventually... Eventually, all of Israel will come around, but this is the testimony of Jewish Messiah followers. When I was growing up, the name of Yeshua was what you said when you stubbed your toe or something like that. That was about it, right? Uh, and uh, uh, you know, and uh, uh, and certainly, uh, you uh, uh, as Jewish people, we would we would not ever want to consider anything related to him because what, you know, what's good news? What's the good news for Jews in in, 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 in all of this? Uh, you, you know, why would I ever want to believe uh, in, in any of this? Uh, but the reality is, just like we read in Isaiah 53, we come to the realization it was for our sins that he suffered. And so we like to say we believe in Yeshua because we're Jewish, not in spite of it. Not, well, even though I'm Jewish, uh, you know, or someone might say to me, wow, when did you, when did you be, you know, you used to be Jewish, right? Right, people do say, you used to be Jewish, right? Right, and so in a very nice way, uh, after my, the inside of my lips starts to bleed, uh, uh, you know, I say, no, that's not exactly how it is. That Yeshua is the, moving forward of the history of Israel. The destiny of the history of Israel is the coming of the Messiah. The destiny of exile and redemption is the coming of the Messiah. And so it should be the most natural thing for Jews to believe. But what do we read in Romans chapter 11? In the infinite plan of God, he did it this way so that the nations could hear the message. No time to read all those verses. But in Romans, you know, Because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to provoke them to jealousy. Often what we do is just simply provoke them. That's not what we want to do, right? We want to make our people uh, 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 jealous. And this issue of the arm of the Lord is also in the New Covenant. And just like in Psalm 106, not the word arm of the Lord, but yet the power of God. And what do we read at the very beginning of the book of Romans, the very beginning of the book? Paul, a bondservant of Messiah Yeshua, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his, promise, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with what? With the arm of the Lord, with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Messiah Yeshua. Our Lord, and then what do we read in Philippians chapter three, uh, in uh, verse uh, ten? Paul's talking about his identification of knowing Messiah, and he says that I may know Him and the what? The power of His resurrection, the zroa, the arm, the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection. From the dead. So the whole finished work of the story of the Exodus, of the Passover, points us, leads us to the destiny of Israel, and that is the embracing of Messiah Yeshua. The the story of Messiah Yeshua uh, in the Gospels is part of Jewish history, even though the vast majority of Jewish people. Don't understand it, because that's exactly what we read in Isaiah 53. That's exactly it. You know that if people ask this question, wouldn't it have been just been better if they all believed, right? Remember, we've had this conversation. Wouldn't it have just been better if everybody just believed? He wouldn't be the Messiah. Could not be. He had to be rejected according to the scriptures, according to the mind of God. And of course, I always have to say this, at the end of Romans 11, when Paul explains all this, we might say, wouldn't it, you know, but wouldn't it have been better if they had just believed? Who can understand the mind of the Lord? Therefore, let's just be a living sacrifice. God, do with me what you will. That's what you get at the end of Romans 11 into chapter 12. And so may we, as we enter into the season of Passover, just be uh, so um, thankful to the Lord for the redemption out of Egypt and the destiny that we embrace uh, when we live in Messiah. As Jewish believers, as Gentile believers, we are embracing the destiny of Israel in the Messiah. And when we look around us and we see that our people don't believe, we say that's exactly how it was laid out for us and how wonderful it is that God has opened up my eyes, the miracle of opening up my eyes and my ears and my heart to embrace the Messiah. And so may this week we do what we were talking about earlier. May we clean out that old leaven. May we be prepared for the Seder. May we be thankful in our hearts. May we confess uh, our sins and may we be who we really are. You know, clean in Messiah Yeshua. So may this be truly a rich, thankful, redemptive Passover season. Lord, uh, God, thank you for the Zroa. The Zroa. God, I pray that this coming Friday night when we're sitting at home and we're having a Seder, we look at that shank bone. May we remember the whole story of the shank. May we be thankful, yes, for the lamb back in Egypt, but may we be thankful for the lamb of God who came to take away the sin. Lord, we thank you that the day is going to come when the lamb will be king, as we read in the book of Revelation. The lamb, the lamb is king. Thank you, uh, Lord, for that. And thank you that today... We experience the Lamb as King, King of Israel, Lord. And thank you for the redemption that we have. Thank you, Lord, that not only did you take away our sins, but you've given us new life. You not only uh, allowed us to live, but you parted the waters of the sea. And so, God, may we live uh, that, uh, uh, that, that little phrase in Psalm 106, singing a song and giving praise to you. On the other side of the sea. Thank you, God, for Messiah, our Passover Thank you.